Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. We'll be wrapping up Hebrews chapter 1 this morning, looking at verses 10 through 14. As I thought about the context of this uh, passage, really the, the chapter as a whole, um, and thinking about the context of the original audience, which we've emphasized over and over, and we'll talk about it again today, this danger or this uh, temptation that they had to, to return uh, to their roots in Judaism, to return to the temple worship, to forsake um, what, what Christ had taught them, really, and to return to uh, a, an older way, a way that they maybe would have experienced less cultural pressure, less persecution. And I wonder if all of us sort of can get a bit nostalgic about returning to a time when we didn't have a care in the world. Um, for many of us, that's a time in childhood where we felt a, a sense of security right? and, and a lack of responsibility, really. Right? Uh, for some of us, that, that's a brief window. Right? Um, and it's, it's sad to see the innocence of children stripped away by the hardships of life. But other, others of us, you know, have, have an extended period of a season of our lives where we reflect upon that with nostalgia. Either way, though, the hardships of reality do creep in to all of our lives. Um, and an essential part, I think, in, or an aspect of our reality is that there is a constant flux uh, alongside, we, we live in constant change alongside creatures who are in constant change and creation that is undergoing constant change. And we have a desire to return to a time when change was maybe slow or there were longer periods of rest. Uh, again, I know kids might think of that as the most boring times. <laughs> All I have to do is sit here and rest and then, and then we grow up and we think, man, I wish I could have that kind of peaceful naivete again in my life. But the author of Hebrews has been making this case for the superiority of Christ over all angels, over all creation, really, but he's specifically making the argument that, there, that he is superior to angels because there was, it seems, a temptation for them to elevate angels above their station right? and even to, to worship and honor them. And so his next consideration in his argument is the unchangeable nature of the sun. That the sun is superior because he does not change. And while we live in a world that is in constant change, God is unchanging. Right? If God is God, then he cannot change. For any change in God would dim diminish his being. It would turn his being into a becoming as if he could become something better or even become something worse, right? That, that would remove his godness from him. And so we'll come back to this later on, but it's precisely the fact that the sun is unchangeable that makes him so compelling. And we desire to understand what we have never known by personal experience, and yet there's something innate in us that desires that, that longs for that, even though we've never personally experienced that. In, in truth, right? We've had, a, we've had seasons where maybe it was, there was less disruption, less change, but we've always known change. And so in a world that's filled with this continual transition and impermanence, 
we are oftentimes tempted to formulate our own plan to find security and peace. Right? As long as that plan is of our own making, then it can only lead us outside of God's perfect will revealed in Scripture. And so the, what I want to argue, the kind of the central point of this message is that the future of the saints is permanently secure because the Son is perpetually sovereign. And you'll see that in your notes there if you're following along. But let me go ahead and pray before we read this passage of Scripture together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this important reminder that we have Lord, of, of Christ's superiority, his supremacy. As we look out and we think of, of kind of our, making our own path, making our own plan to secure our future, Lord, we, we want to be reminded that ultimately that is a fruitless endeavor if it is apart from your plan for us, if it is apart from your perfect will for our lives. And Lord, we do experience change and transition, and that is inevitable for us as humans. Lord, but we want to make those changes with, in light of, of your sovereignty, in light of your provision. And we want to do so trusting that you are leading us, that you're guiding us, and that we're not just going off on our own, trying to, to make things make sense for ourselves. Lord, we want to be deeply uh, in your word and deeply in prayer that you might receive the glory in the decisions that we make. And so we pray that you would speak to us now, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth, soften our hearts, remove the distractions that we have in our minds, the worries and concerns about this coming week. Lord, help us to just rest and to receive food from your word, to receive nourishment by your spirit as you reveal yourself to us for our comfort, our, our comfort and for your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's read Hebrews chapter 1. Actually, I'm going to just read the, the whole chapter to get the context as we conclude it. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. 
They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, the first point in your outline is going to, we're going to just break this into two sections, verses 10 through 12 and 13 through 14. So the first one is the immutability of the sun, the immutability of the sun. Mutability is, we've been using several synonyms for that, the unchangeableness, unchanging character of God. And so this next quote is the longest from this chain of quotes that we've, that we've been working our way through the past few weeks. Remember, he made the argument and uh, the case for the superiority of the angels back in verse 4, and then from 5 through the end of the chapter, till, well, actually 13, he's giving quotes from the Old Testament to prove his case. Right? He's, he's, he's saying the Son is superior to angels, and let me show you from Scripture that he is superior. He's expecting them to be Bereans, to want him to prove it. So this next quote is the longest one, and it comes um, verses 10 through 12. Uh, It's taken from Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. And just like we've done with the other quotes, we've said that the context from that Old Testament passage is important to consider. That more than likely, especially as we take these passages from the Psalms, um, these, are, these are the songs of the church. These are the songs that, that the covenant community was, was singing. They're familiar with the lyrics. They're familiar with what comes before and after what's being quoted here. And so it probably ha- is important for us to consider those themes as well. And what you find over and over again is that the themes are constant. There's constant parallels um, in, in this chapter to the supremacy of the sun. So the inspired heading of Psalm 102 is um, this, a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. That's the inspired title and heading of Psalm 102, a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. So the psalmist begins with the description of his desperate situation. He's struggling. He's in distress. His heart is so troubled that he even forgets to eat his bread. I'm sure you've been there before. Your your sorrow is so heavy that you can't even eat. He groans out loud. He says, I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. You can imagine the despair. You can imagine the sorrow, the deepness of his depression. And so this theme of the psalmist's lament is really the weakness and the mortality of man and he himself in his sin. The consequences of sin have led him to this place of deep despair. Maybe his own sin, but also the consequences of the sin of others that are coming against him, that have created so much havoc and, and conflict in his life. And so he goes from that lament into the next section where, where he describes what lifts him out of that despair. And what is it? It's the knowledge that the Lord is enthroned forever. Verse 12. 
what lifts him out of this, this just endless tears, probably un, uh, um, uncontrollable fasting, what lifts him out of that is recognition that the Lord is enthroned forever. And he says that this same Lord regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. God doesn't force himself to listen to the prayers of the afflicted. He's not like, oh, here he goes again. Here's Eeyore, once again coming before me with his complaints. That's not God's attitude. He's not put off by our groaning, by our longing for peace and relief. In fact, there's nowhere else that we should take that but to the throne of grace. The psalmist looks forward then. It's, it, he, he cries out to the Lord. He recognizes and acknowledges the Lord is concerned and, and listening and regarding his prayer. And then he says, or he looks forward to this time when God will rescue his people, that they'll have freedom. So most likely, this is sort of like a, a recognition of their time in, in exile. Their freedom to gather together in worship in a community once again. Verses 18 through 22. And then all of that, all of, that's the context that then sets up the conclusion of the psalm, which is what we find in Hebrews 1. It's the conclusion. Right, where the Lord has created the heavens and the earth, but it acknowledges that they'll wear out. That they'll all be changed. They'll be rolled up like a garment. Once again, it's this creator-creature distinction that we've been talking about, where God is, is setting himself up in contrast to creation. When everything in this world is fading away, God remains the same. That's, that's how it concludes. That's how the psalm, that's, that's the comfort that the psalmist needed to know and to hear, that God is constant when everything else is in flux. And this is especially true of the Son. He, he acknowledges that this is God speaking of the Son in contrast to what he says about angels. And so I wanted to, to explain just briefly uh, this doctrine of divine immutability. What, is, what does it imply? In, in volume two of his systematic theology, Herman Bovink tracks the historical argument of divine immutability and, uh, and the implications of it. It's a, an excellent section. I'd encourage you to read it, but I'll, I'll quote a, a bit of a lengthy section of it. He says, from the presence of motion in the universe, Aristotle inferred the existence of a first mover, an everlasting immovable being who is one and eternal, necessary, immutable, free from all composition, devoid of potentiality, matter, change, and who is pure act, pure form, unadulterated essence, absolute form, the very nature of a thing, primary substance. Now, this is, this is from Aristotle, right? Just reflecting upon nature, coming away with the recognition that there must be something immutable, something unchangeable, that all of this change that, that started this, right? That first mover that puts things into motion. Philo called God unchangeable, self-consistent, invariable, steadfast, firm, fixed, unadulterable. Now, these are not Christian assessments, but they are just reflecting upon the world. And so a, uh, Bob Inc. goes on to say, with this assessment, Christian theology concurred. God, according to Irenaeus, is always the same, self-identical. In Augustine, God's immutability flows directly from the fact that he is supreme, 
perfect being. This is from Augustine. It is instinctual for every rational creature to think that there is an altogether unchangeable and incorruptible God. He's reflecting upon the, the thoughts of philosophers and saying this, this is innate into, in all creatures. We recognize there must be an unchangeable, incorruptible God. This concept, Bavink goes on to say, of an eternal and unchangeable being cannot be obtained by the senses. For all creatures, also humans themselves, are changeable. We don't know it through our senses. We can't experience unchangeableness. But within our souls, humans see and find the immutable something that is better and greater than all the things that are subject to change. It's almost like it's being exalted as a, as a, as a proof for God's existence, this recognition of an, in, uh, an unchangeable, incorruptible God. And, and what did heretics do with this doctrine? They consider God to be mutable. They suggest that he has changed throughout his interactions with humanity. And Bavink points out the difference between the creator and the creature hinges on the contrast between being and becoming. Right? If God is, then he's, he can't be becoming in any sense. He can't be undergoing or experiencing change. Creatures change. God does not. We are unstable while God is a firm foundation, which is why we have so many times God being referred to as our rock. Right? The rock upon which we find a sure footing. Because we are unstable, we must stand upon him who is not moved, who does not change. So Augustine likened God's immutability to the sun that remains largely the same, even though it can have, it can in one instance harmfully cause burns, right, or or illuminate our path. So the sun can, the same sun, the the sun that's that's, not changing, um, you know, speaking generically, that same sun is, is burning in one instance and illuminating. In another, uh, Thomas Aquinas points out that a pillar doesn't change when a person is looking at it from the right or left. It's the same pillar, but our perspective of it might be different. Bobbing acknowledges that illustrations are inadequate to convey the whole truth, but he argues this. He says that they do suggest how a thing may change in its relations while remaining the same in essence. Right? So what's changing is not the thing. The essence of the thing remains the same, but our perspective changes. And so God is unchanging, even though there are descriptions within Scripture that kind of from, from human perspective view God as, as changing his mind or repenting. Right? We have language like that. That is from an anthropomorphic language. It's, it's, it's men describing God from our perspective, and there's, there's, there's a changing component to how we see God even though God himself has not changed. So what is the point of all this? To understand the immutability of God impacts our sense of peace, our sense of comfort. Considering the fact that this Jewish community had experienced hardship, that they had a robust knowledge of the Psalms, in all likelihood they'd they'd sung this very psalm. As the afflicted ones, right? Recognizing and reflecting upon their challenges and their trials. So they would have probably been very familiar with the context. 
having sung it many times. And maybe the author of Hebrews knew that his audience had a growing nostalgia for a time where they were free from persecution and constant pressure from the outside world that wanted them to conform. However, he also knows by inspiration of the Spirit what they don't quite grasp, that returning to the temple would not get them back to a place of serenity. What they needed more than anything in the midst of a chaotic world was to learn to rest in the protection of their sovereign Lord. Recognition of the permanence of the Son provides the assurance and comfort that they're after. And so Jesus was the man of sorrows. There's a, there's a sense in which the, the entire psalm is about Jesus. He knew affliction. He was the afflicted one crying out to God for comfort. He's also the one who brings his authority to bear, who, who takes on the punishment, the punishment of sin and, and the wrath of God upon himself. He understood the depths of human despair. He was abandoned on the cross, not only by his closest companions on earth, but by his father. And at the same time, in that judgment, in the midst of that judgment, he was conquering sin. And in his resurrection, he conquers death. He brings fulfillment to the despairing cries of every previous generation. And he promises fulfillment to every future cry of God's covenant people. So that even now, he is still enthroned in glory. Seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the son continues to hear the cries of his people. He continues to represent them and their petitions before his father. So this quote here, I believe, is, is, is referring his audience to the true source of stability. Right? That will be found by returning not to a nostalgic time of the past, but by learning to rest in the unchangeable, permanent nature of the gospel. We must learn to trust the only thing that is stable and constant if we want relief from our present and ever-fluctuating hardships. Right, we can expect that to continue. But even more so, we can be confident that Christ will remain seated on his throne through it all. And he will bring us all the way home. And that's what is emphasized in this next section, right? He is seated on the throne, enthroned in verse 13. And so it's the immutability of the Son that ensures the preservation of the inheritance of the saints. And that's the next point in your outline, verses 13 through 14, the inheritance of the saints. This final quote comes from Psalm 110, verse 1. We've already referenced it in verse 3, which speaks of the Son being seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the seventh of this chain of Old Testament quotes that the author of Hebrews is giving us as an argument for the superiority of the Son. And the Messianic Psalm that it's referencing, Psalm 110, is quoted or alluded to more than any other Psalm in the, in the Old Testament. So the New Testament refers to this particular verse, this particular psalm, 22 times, either by direct quote or allusion. The author has the same interpretation of this verse as Jesus in the Gospels. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all reference this psalm in the words of Jesus, referring it to himself. 
You have Peter using this same reference in Acts chapter 2 in his sermon at Pentecost, referencing it to Jesus. And you have Paul doing so in Colossians and in Ephesians. So he will, the, the author of Hebrews will even reference this several more times in Hebrews 2, Hebrews 5, Hebrews 6, chapter 7, 8, 10, and 12. Again, this is, a, this is stru- structurally important for his point. And so, once again, we should take some time to consider the context of Psalm 110. What is the psalm overall trying to achieve? The psalm refers to the Father's exaltation of the Son at his right hand. It begins with Yahweh, or the Lord, says to my Lord. This is a psalm of David. So Yahweh says to David's Lord, right? David is speaking of a future son who is exalted above him, who would conquer his enemies. That's, that's, that's the theme of verse 2, 5, and 6 in Psalm 110. He would fulfill his messianic office as king, defeating his and our enemies. However, he would also be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110, verse 4. So this king is also a priest. It can refer to none other than the Messiah. There is no other person who can fulfill that role. Only the Messiah fulfills both the office of king and high priest. And so you have this, um, this description from a commentary that, that I... Uh, it's one of my favorite ones on, on Hebrews from Hughes. He says this, It was an angel host that joyfully heralded the birth of the Savior. Luke 2.13 Angels ministered to him after the ordeal of his temptation in the wilderness. Angels at the empty tomb announced the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Angels strengthened the disciples who had just witnessed the ascension of their master from the Mount of Olives with the assurance that he would return in the same way as they had seen him go, Acts 1.10 and following. And angels will accompany the Son of Man when he returns in the glory of his Father. You have that in several places in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So therefore, this, this messianic king is superior to angels who were ministering spirits, who are ministering spirits that ultimately serve those who are to inherit salvation. Right. They cared for him. They ministered to the Savior. And now the Savior sends them to minister to us, to the saints. Just as the angels served the Messiah, so they surround and protect the saints. And John Calvin points out the tremendous comfort that this verse provides to believers. Angels are ceaselessly tasked with guarding, protecting, and ministering to the saints until they reach glory. And it's not just one, it's not just a personal guardian angel, it's all of them. It's as many as God establishes that, 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 you're, that are needed in your predicament. That they are at spiritual war, protecting and providing for you. They are tasked with securing our perseverance. Many of you, I'm sure, have read Pilgrim's Progress. It's a beautiful illustration of this. John Bunyan, he concludes with Christian and hopeful together at the end of their journey. They're on this last leg and they meet angels 
two shining ones, it says, who tell them you have two difficulties left. First being this river that you must cross. And he's like, you know, they're, they're expecting the angels to go with them, to guide them path through this river. And they say, you must go by faith. You must go on your own. Well, how deep is this river? Can you give us some help? And he's like, it's going to vary based upon your faith. And so for, for Christian, he enters into the water and he's immediately almost drowning. He's sinking and he's in despair. And the waters, he says, are coming over my head. And he's, he's flailing about, and, and all of a sudden things go dark so that he can't even see in front of him. And Hopeful enters the water, and he's able to stand. It's actually shallow enough so that he can see and he can encourage Christian. And he tells him, you're going to be fine. We're, I can see the gates. I can see where we're going. I see people waiting to receive us. And Christian says, no, they're waiting to receive you. They're not waiting to receive me. My sin has overcome me, right? I have no hope. And so they enter into this river where they're supposed to lose their mortal garments, and it's a test of faith. And Christian has this fear and doubt that just overwhelms him. He's convinced he won't make it, and, and here's the discussion between the two. Then Hopeful said, my brother, you have quite forgot the text where it is said of the wicked, there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men. Um, they are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. These troubles and distresses that you go through in these waters are no sign that God has forsaken you, but are sent to try you. Whether you will call to mind that which is which heretofore you have received of his goodness, and live upon him in your distresses. Then I saw in my dream that Christian was in a muse a while. Right, as he's listening and, and hearing the encouragement of his friend, he finally snaps out of this, and, and, and he hopeful adds these words, Be of good cheer, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. And with that, Christian break out with a loud voice, Oh, I see him again. And he tells me, when thou passest, Isaiah 43, 2, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. Then it says, they both took courage. And the enemy was after that as still as a stone until they were gone over. Christian, therefore, presently found ground to stand upon. And so it followed that the rest of the river was but shallow, and thus they got over. Now the angels met them on the bank of the other side, and then they ushered them joyfully into the gate of heaven. And as they enter past the gate, or they, for, before they can enter in, they have to, to reveal the, the certificate that they had been given, right, to prove. It's, it's, it's proof of their faith and their trust in Christ. And so that last difficulty is at the gate where, where they have this angelic accompaniment. And really, it's, it's not a difficulty at all for them because they have what is necessary 
It's depicted as just a warm and a joyful acceptance of them into glory. They show their certificate to the king and then they're transfigured as they enter into the kingdom of heaven and they witness the angels going right before them who are transitioned into this golden glory. But then he looks back and he sees ignorance coming along. And ignorance arrives at the gate having crossed over that same river, but he was riding along the ferry of vainglory. No trouble at all. No challenges because he wasn't even in the water. And when he reaches the other side, no angels accompany him. He walks up to the gate on his own and he reads the, the sign on the entrance and he knocks and he finds that he doesn't have what's necessary to enter. And the contrast is significant, right, between Christians' experience. It's, it's shocking with ignorance who, who doesn't struggle at all to cross the river, who doesn't undergo this, this doubt or this, this conflict of faith because his faith was false. He wasn't burdened by, a, by his conscience because he had grown numb to sin. And so he had nothing to show the king upon his arrival at the gate. Christian, on the other hand, went through a deep darkness and despair, and it was the example of hopeful that encourages us to keep our eyes of faith sharply focused upon the king of glory, who will not leave us in that despair. So the original audience could not return to their past, but the promise of their future glory made their present suffering deepen their dependence upon Christ. And that in itself would keep them and preserve them all the way to the end. That's the perspective we need if we're going to persevere. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this precious reminder to us. Lord, we are... We do find ourselves in seasons of des desperation and despair, and even seasons of doubt, where our faith is challenged and we struggle to move forward. We struggle to persevere. Lord, help us to keep these promises before us, to refer back to Hebrews 1 when we go through those challenges, to remind ourselves of the superiority and supremacy of Christ who does not change of the one who is seated on the throne and who will remain there for all eternity. Lord, may we turn away from this world, turn away from the sin and the corruption and find in him the satisfaction that we so long for, the rest and the peace that we desire. But Lord, when we enter through trial, when we enter through times of testing, as is illustrated by in multiple places in Pilgrim's Progress. Lord, we undergo the same challenges. Lord, may we be surrounded by hopeful friends who would point us to the cross, who would point us to our Savior and to the work that he has accomplished fully and finally to secure that future that we are heading toward. 
Lord, may that comfort us even now. And may we rest in that and may we respond with hope and joy as we rejoice in these truths and as we come and celebrate the Lord's Supper. May we do so with confidence in what our Lord and Savior has accomplished. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing our hymn of response, actually our psalm of response, Psalm 8a, O Lord, our Lord, and all the earth, Psalm 8a.